0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Barara.
2: We are in the business of believing victims. That's our default. But... We also have another guiding principle, which you had, which is our responsibility to continue to investigate. And when information comes about during that investigation that we may not be happy to receive, we have to take it where it takes us and then make the decision based upon the full measure of information.
1: That's Cyrus Vance Jr. He's been the Manhattan District Attorney since 2010. Vance has overseen a decade of profound change for Manhattan. He's grappled with whether to prosecute minor offenses like marijuana possession and turnstile jumping, engaged in longstanding debates over the district attorney's jurisdiction, and adjusted to the constancy of contemporary press coverage. Vance's office has also received both praise and criticism for a number of high-profile sex crime cases involving movie mogul Harvey Weinstein, former IMF managing director Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and disgraced gynecologist Robert Haddon. And Vance has worked closely with my former office the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, including during my tenure. Vance joins me this week for a special two-part episode. In part one, we discuss the philosophy of prosecution, the peculiarities of law enforcement in New York City, and his thoughts on the Harvey Weinstein case. That's coming up, stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. So there was some news yesterday, as it appears the Justice Department has decided to close insider trading investigations with respect to three senators, Senator Kelly Loeffler, Senator James Inhofe, and Senator Dianne Feinstein. And that announcement has caused people to ask some questions. This question comes from Nicole Harderink, who asks on Twitter, Hashtag AskPreet, WTF? Question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark. The punctuation is longer than the question. So I understand a lot of people are wondering... What's going on? Why were those investigations with respect to those three senators closed? By way of background, you'll recall that a dramatic step was taken by the Justice Department with respect to a fourth senator, Senator Richard Burr, who traded to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million dollars in individual stocks, dumping most of them around the time that the coronavirus was still being downplayed by a lot of people. And after he received a classified briefing that talked about the dangers of the coronavirus in the coming weeks and months... I would note that with respect to the three senators, two are Republicans, one's a Democrat. And with respect to all of them, my understanding is they have claimed, and presumably were able to demonstrate, that they didn't have any direct participation in the decisions to make those trades. In one case, with respect to Senator Inhofe, he didn't even attend the classified briefing. That's a little bit at the heart of what people think would make up an insider trading case. Now, I agree with former colleagues and friends who have been posting on social media their dubiousness that the investigation was able to be completed so quickly with respect to these three. It is fairly fast. Usually people take a little bit more time, but it may be that this is an election year and the FBI and the prosecutor's office are trying to make quick work of it. And it may be given the the strictures of the speech or debate clause and interviews they did, apparently of these three senators, at least Diane Feinstein has said that she was spoken to and presumably material relating to communications between them and their brokers was provided to law enforcement. And on the basis of that review, they had no reason to be able to pierce the explanation that these senators were not directly involved in the sales. And if if they're not directly involved in the sales, there can be no insider trading case. They have to have been the ones who did the trading or ordered the trading. Richard Burr, of course, stands in a completely different position because he has conceded that he's the one who made the decision to engage in those trades. So the problem here is that the Justice Department, led by Bill Barr, has hurt its credibility by looking like, in other cases that they've been given special treatment to certain people who are close to the president, that they give negative treatment to people who are the president's adversaries. That has been perpetuated by the president himself, perpetuated by the president's Twitter feed. So if people are asking questions and are acting dubious about the Justice Department's actions, I think that a lot of the blame for that is to be laid at the feet of the leadership of the Justice Department as it stands now. That said, and you know, my old office had a lot of experience with insider trading cases, I'm not prepared to say that there's something wrong here, or nefarious here. Insider trading cases are hard to bring. They're hard to prove. No one has been successfully prosecuted, as I understand it, under the Stock Act, which was passed a few years ago, that clarified that insider trading laws apply to members of Congress. I think even the case against Richard Burr, although it seems to be accelerating, there was a seizure of Richard Burr's cell phone that necessarily involved the district court judge making a probable cause finding. That's a big deal. But I don't think that's a slam-dunk case either for a variety of reasons that I've mentioned before. So until I know more, I do think it was a little fast to close those cases against the three senators, but I don't have any reason to think it was not appropriate. This question comes in an email from Dickon Fiore. Hi, Preet. My wife and I are huge fans of your podcast. Would you please explain if how the Congress can check the actions of the Supreme Court? Can the Congress ever overturn a Supreme Court ruling? Thank you, DCF. Well, that's a good question. And it depends on the nature of the thing that the Supreme Court has decided. If the Supreme Court has decided that there is a particular right enshrined in the Constitution, the Congress is not going to be able to overturn it in the sense that it can take that right away. So, for example, based on current Supreme Court controlling precedent, like Roe v. Wade and other decisions, if the Congress tried to pass a law outright banning abortion as a general matter everywhere, they wouldn't be able to do that. The Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, is what governs in that case. Same with the freedom of speech, same with the Second Amendment, whether you like it or not. There are certain laws that the Congress cannot pass because the Supreme Court has determined that those rights are protected by the Constitution. On the other hand, there are lots of cases that the Supreme Court decides relating to a statute that they say needs to be interpreted in a particular way or is overly vague or means one thing versus another thing. And sometimes that's the case because Congress was intentionally vague because they needed to come up with a political compromise. Sometimes Congress just screwed up. Or sometimes Congress has changed its mind and people have changed their mind over time and a law needs updating. So from time to time, when the Supreme Court strikes down a law or does something that Congress doesn't like, I wouldn't say necessarily they're overturning the Supreme Court, but they can pass a new law so long as it doesn't violate a constitutional principle and replace the old law and then see what the Supreme Court says. Now, sometimes that doesn't work either because the Supreme Court can be difficult. And Milgram and I talked about a little bit of this when we were talking about the line of cases relating to public corruption that the Supreme Court has taken sort of a dim view of in connection with thinking the laws that Congress passes have been too broad. You may remember that a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court decided a case called Kelly v. United States relating to the Bridgegate scandal involving Governor Christie and members of his administration in New Jersey. There's a lot of discussion in that case about what could be lawful versus unlawful with respect to what politicians and members of official administrations do. And the court traced the history of cases relating to public corruption prosecutions. Once upon a time, about 30 years ago, there was a case called McNally of the United States. That case turned on the question of whether or not the wire fraud statute was overly vague and cryptic. And the Supreme Court said, the only time the prosecutors can use that statute is with respect to schemes to deprive a victim of their money or property. And Congress decided, well, you know what? Sometimes it, there are schemes that you want to protect against that don't involve money or property, And they passed a statute trying to sort of, in your words, overturn the Supreme Court decision, barring fraudulent schemes to deprive another of the intangible right of honest services. And prosecutors used that statute for a while. Then that went to the Supreme Court too. And the court decided, you know what? That's too vague also. Honest services, too vague. And it adopted a limitation, confining the statute to schemes involving bribes or kickbacks. So there's some things Congress can't do. There's some things Congress can do with respect to checking the Supreme Court, but then there can be a back and forth, and we'll see what happens with continuing efforts to wipe out public corruption. And then there are other examples where there's just a gap in the law, the Supreme Court points it out, and Congress can fix it. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there My guest this week is Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, Jr. Vance has been at the forefront of law enforcement in Manhattan since he took office 10 years ago. In part one of our special two-episode conversation, we break down the relationship between the district attorney and the U.S. attorney, talk through the relationship between his office and the NYPD, and discuss the legal evolution spurred on by the Me Too movement. Cyrus Vance, thanks so much for being on the show. Well,
2: Preet, good to talk to you again, and thanks for inviting me.
1: I'm sorry it's not in person. I long envisioned that you and I would one day do this podcast, and we'd, we'd talk for a long time, and then maybe have refreshments afterwards, but it's not to be.
2: Not yet, but soon enough, I hope.
1: How, how are you doing? How's your family? I think you said before we got on air that everyone's doing okay.
2: Yeah, my family, uh, thank God, is healthy, and everyone is safe, and we feel very, very fortunate uh, because of that.
1: Do you find this peculiar at all, that your former colleague, were are still friends? The former <laughs> U.S. attorney sitting down and questioning, for an extended period, the sitting district attorney of Manhattan—is it—is
2: it odd for you at all? No, it's it's not odd for me at all. But I think our relationship <laughs> was out of the ordinary uh, for the respective office holders of the Manhattan DA and the Southern District of New York. Is
1: oh, uh, what, do you, what do you what do you what do you mean
2: by that? So I we should
1: we should maybe we should explain to folks a couple of things, and then we'll talk about the relationship. New York City, by my count, has nine relevant prosecutors there's not one, there are five district attorneys. There's also the office of the special narcotics prosecutor, handles just narcotics cases. There's not one, but two U.S. attorney's offices, the Southern District of New York, the Eastern District of New York. So that's six, seven, eight. And then there's also the attorney general for the state of New York who is able to bring cases from time to time in the city also. What do you make of the fact, having done this for a long time, of so many prosecutors with overlapping jurisdiction, especially SDNY and the Manhattan DA's office, what does that do for Public safety and law enforcement. Does it get confusing?
2: Well, I think it does get confusing, but overall, I think the public benefits. That is to say, you have some, you know, very smart people seated in the same physical city and its surrounding jurisdiction, and all taking their job seriously. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of brain power uh, and a lot of manpower focused on public safety. And combined, at least in the state system, with the NYPD, 36,000-person police force, independent of all the other police-related offices, I think the public safety quotient in New York City is high. But it's a competitive world, and New York is a competitive city in a competitive world, and lawyers are competitive people. And- even
1: even in law enforcement, even public servants. Some people sometimes don't always appreciate this, and probably the most intense competition was between the two U.S. attorney's offices, but we all competed. I know it sounds odd when we're all on the same side of public safety. Explain how that competition works.
2: Well, long ago when there was only state prosecutors and not U.S. attorney's offices, the local prosecutor had jurisdiction over almost all crimes. But over the last, you tell me, Preet, 50 years or so, and of course, the U.S. attorneys have been around before that, but the federal criminal laws have expanded a great deal and overlap in many of the crimes that they identify with state crimes. Take a look at fraud, cybercrime, even terrorism, which our office uh, has prosecuted a number of times. It's, uh, that, that's an overlapping jurisdiction. Uh, gangs, uh, even sexual assaults—many are, you know, some are prosecuted federally and and, and many state. But this wasn't the case several generations ago but is the case now and has been I think for the last 25 years at least I remember when I was I was a young assistant in the Manhattan DA's office in the 1980s and we got into jurisdictional squabbles with Andy Maloney who was then at that time the uh, US attorney for the Eastern District of New York and fast forward to our time together in the, over the last 8 years or so and that competitiveness still existed the breadth of the federal uh, statutes was even broader, and the ability of the FBI and, and the U.S. attorneys to handle many of the cases that had traditionally been handled by state prosecutors exploded. What I liked most about our relationship was, historically, our two offices, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, had a sort of an open competitiveness, sometimes warfare over (laughs) who had what case, and I think resulted in times at at behavior that was not consistent with the best practice in law enforcement, where owning the case was more important than solving the case in the best way for the public. And we should
1: uh, should explain to people that, you know, our offices, the Southern District main office in lower Manhattan, is just a few yards from the Manhattan DA's office. And the courthouses, the respective main courthouses are literally next
2: door to each other. Yeah. So over over the years, I think there was that competitiveness got out of hand between the two offices, my opinion. But what I enjoyed very much about our time together as well, and I'm enjoying it uh, with your successor, Jeffrey Berman, is that I think we both felt that we were not going to let territorialism get in the way of the best result for the case. There were times when our investigations absolutely overlapped, and I think in our two cases, your office and mine, you and I, if we had a problem, uh, talked about it, had an open and frank discussion and figured out what was the best way to go forward. Sometimes the cases went federal. Sometimes we prosecuted a portion of the case and you prosecuted another. But I do think that the assistants in both offices, I believe knew that the principals in those offices were not really interested in hearing about the fights over who has the case. But Working yeah, so it through.
1: people should understand that the competition continued. I had pride in my office. You had pride in your office, and you know we did have disagreements that we had to work through. But we also never came to a time that I think some of our predecessors did when we weren't on speaking terms. There were times when some of our predecessors wouldn't even get on the phone with each other. I believe you and I had a regular date usually at the Odeon, which I don't know how the Odeon is doing now. Great, great I, it's, fries. it's doing takeout. <laughs> oh, it is good. And for and Forlini's, which was which is where I think I first met you with. Bob Morgenthau, the three of us had lunch t- together when you were yes. the the incoming district attorney just having been elected. And I had been the U.S. attorney for about five minutes. Yeah. I remember it was very intimidating. It was very intimidating to eat at the booth in the back of Forlini's because the booth actually was dedicated to the already <laughs> legendary Bob Morgenthau. And I'm the new U.S. attorney who has the job four decades after Morgenthau. And not only am I sitting in his favorite restaurant where he's known to everyone, but it's actually a booth dedicated to him. I don't know if I ever told you that it was a somewhat intimidating lunch.
2: Well, he could also be an intimidating guy. I think he had a a, a warm soul, but he had a deep booming voice and could sometimes be a little imperious.
1: What's the right relationship between a district attorney's office and the relevant police department? Who does what and why and how do you resolve disputes if there are any?
2: The relationship between the police and the prosecutor's office has to be two things. It has to be respectful and collegial because the police, NYPD, are responsible for the overwhelming majority of the cases that our office prosecutes. Not so much in the white-collar law area, but absolutely in street crime and very serious street crime, rape, robbery, murder, and the vast number, at least at the time, of misdemeanor cases cases some of which themselves were very serious. There's no such thing as a case that's not serious if you're the defendant in it or if you're the victim in it. Uh, so you need to be collegial to deal with our office being able to make an intelligent assessment of the case when it came into what's called our complaint room uh, to be analyzed and whether a charge should be filed. But you also had to be objective and you have a responsibility as a, as a prosecutor and assistant district attorney when police come to you with a case to make sure that, as, certainly as best you can, on the limited time constraints that are available to you uh, if someone is in custody, to make a judgment whether or not the case should be commenced. And that requires objectivity. And I will say that both as a young assistant DA in the 1980s, I remember many times when police officers came in with a case, could have been a gun possession, it could have been any number of cases where I had to basically say, I'm sorry, you know, this is not a case I'm going to write up at this time, more needs to be done. If I had questions about whether or not I was getting a candid assessment of the facts predicating a search of a car or search of a person for a gun, I had to make judgment calls as to whether those constitutional violations, if they were violations, made it inappropriate for me to bring the case in the first instance. But here's what I think has happened most. And I think our office is one of the state offices that exemplifies it is historically The relationship between a prosecutor and a police department has been that the police investigated and the prosecutors prosecuted. Law and order. Law and order. Since the 1930s, when Tom Dewey, who folks know as almost won the presidency and was governor of New York, and before that was the Manhattan District Attorney, started essentially uh, the modern investigative bureau in a DA's office using forensic investigators and accountants to supplement the investigations done by the assistant district attorneys, the course of the office has always been to focus a great deal of its effort. We have a hundred lawyers, roughly, who are working in the investigation division. And when we investigate cases and take a take a lead or partnership role in building the case, from time to time that that's not what the police expect or want. And so from time to time, there's there is there's conflict. In the making of a case, but I will say that by and large, uh, overwhelmingly, our ability to work collaboratively, even when we are co-investigators with the NYPD or or another agency, and there are many in New York, not just prosecutors' agencies, but think of all the you know the law enforcement agencies, uh, are we play a a major role not just in indicting and trying the case, but actually in identifying whether a crime has been committed and building the investigation leading to indictment. Is it sometimes
1: the case? You think, whether in your experience or you've heard, that if a detective cares very deeply about a charge being brought and about the value of the case and presses hard and has a great intensity of feeling, does that affect the prosecutor's decision to go forward and maybe be more aggressive than they would otherwise be? Or do they pay that intensity no mind?
2: I think I would say, generally speaking, and in, in, in my opinion- That a detective who is assertive, or a a patrol officer who is assertive and let's just say aggressive, is not a negative, but uh, in fact it can be a positive that the police officer cares about the case. uh, Maybe feels that it's very important in his or her mind that it be brought. That's not a bad thing, but again, it has to be balanced with a arm's length assessment of the facts of the case and a willingness as happens from time to time to initially commence a case but then upon learning later facts that were not available at the inception of the case decide to terminate the case which can also cause conflict between a prosecutor's office and a police department or or another law enforcement agency it is ultimately i think this i would say the same thing my guess is with the with the FBI and the federal prosecutors is they are close allies that's the way it should be but they are also separate and independent and have to maintain the integrity of their decision-making by that independence. Now, when you have a real aggressive police officer and you are a newly minted assistant district attorney, it's tough to push back when the sergeant picks up the phone and calls you in the complaint room because his patrol officer says, you're not going to prosecute this case And that's the benefit of uh, the wisdom and experience of the senior lawyers in the office who are also sitting in the complaint room uh, and helping evaluate the case's felonies and misdemeanors to give support to the assistant's concerns and to essentially train the younger lawyers on what to identify when you should be concerned enough about an issue to push back on the police department. What makes a good prosecutor? What makes a bad prosecutor? I think that the answer to that question, in some sense, has shifted in the last 15 years. And by that, I mean, Preet, that when I was in the office in the 1980s, and I don't mean to dwell in the past, but violent crime was at such levels in New York City. And I will just say the mindset of police and prosecutors was, how do we manage violent crime when we had, at the time, 700 homicides a year in Manhattan and 2,300 murders a year in the city. You were really bailing a boat out where the water kept flooding in over the side of the boat. And I think the attitude of prosecutors then was different than it is today. Since I became DA 11 years ago now, I came in having been a defense lawyer for 20 years in private practice doing white collar and uh, all kinds of litigation Around the country, and I understood from my experience as a defense lawyer that there were aspects of being a prosecutor that we needed to focus on more. And I don't mean to possess; I'm the only person who had this uh, this sense. But I was aware, uh, watching the innocence movement, that a prosecutor's office had to be answerable in some way to the public about the serious issue of people being wrongfully convicted. Of crimes, And so I, in 2010, uh, after speaking with the Dallas DA, uh, who had the first, I think, the first conviction integrity program in the country, uh, we opened a conviction integrity program in Manhattan to review claims that would be made by defendants, by their counsel, uh, by information that came to us from other sources to reinvestigate cases where uh, whether that it was before trial or after a conviction. And that was, I think, a good example of the shift in one sense of prosecutors' offices, that it became objective, apparent, and important as the country itself became focused on criminal justice reform and changes that needed to be made in the system, that prosecutors lead the way, not be pushed or pulled along.
1: Right. And so I get all that. But I guess my, my more fundamental question is, given all of that, what is it that you and your colleagues look for in applicants? What qualities are you looking for when people are coming out of law school and trying to get a job in the Manhattan DA's office? What, what are the attributes that you think will lead them to be the kind of prosecutor that you're describing?
2: Well, I think there's, some, there's certain aspects which have to be given. One, that the applicant is a good writer because so much of our job is in written communication And we obviously look at how the applicant did in law school, but that's not a predetermining factor. Ultimately, uh, I interview everybody who's hired by the office, and we hire probably 50 to 60 people a year and do probably 1,000 interviews. uh, Overall, not me, but the, uh, the rest of the office. And I'm looking for someone, we're looking for someone who we think has got their head screwed on right. They're smart, they write well, their work experience before coming to the office or if they're just coming straight out of law school, what they've done with themselves in their lives before coming to our office matters. We're really looking ultimately for people with good judgment, who are going to work hard, who are going to support their teammates in the office, uh, a willingness to roll up their sleeves and help whatever needs to be done whenever, that are aggressive. Uh, We want prosecutors to be forward-leading, not backward-leading, but ultimately to be thoughtful, and, and have enough judgment to be able to press the pause button if they have a question about whether what they're seeing or doing is right. So you're looking for judgment, intelligence, the ability to work with people. Maybe that's a bit about uh, personality.
1: Right. I mean, you have. I mean, I always say, I tell, I tell to my law students at NYU, there are a lot of things that law school teaches you, but unless you've done a particular kind of clinic, it doesn't teach you how to coax a witness to testify. It doesn't teach you how to make A nervous witness comfortable in testifying. It doesn't teach you a whole hell of a lot about strategy and tactics at trial. And and it doesn't teach you much of anything at all about investigation. We have the same issue. I, I interviewed everybody who came in before they were hired also. I think it's something like 180 people I hired and obviously interviewed many more than that. It's difficult, depending on what their prior experience has been, to see if they're going to be the kind of person that in all cases will do their job with integrity when no one is watching. That's the biggest issue is you have a ton of young people. We have a ton of young people who have never had that kind of responsibility before. They are supervised. We like to think, right? And you have bureau chiefs and we had unit chiefs. But a lot of what they do is never scrutinized on a micro level because there's no time. Nobody has the, nobody has the time. And so you need to trust that when they're making decisions that are never scrutinized by someone above them, that they're making the right decisions. And when they're not sure, they're consulting. And that's sometimes, it's sometimes hard to find you know, how to know that about people before they've done the job.
2: Yeah. You really can't predict, although you, you do have someone come in and you think this person's just a winner. I mean, they're smart and they they seem to be all together and and hopefully they are, but, but what you need to develop good prosecutors to have those, those skills you're talking about is you need, you need good training in the office. And I think obviously they, they get that in your office and I, and I like to believe they get that in mine and
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: People spend a lot of time worrying about, and you touched upon this a second ago, and what the movies are often about and TV shows are often about is the overaggressive cop, the overaggressive prosecutor, the one with the itchy trigger finger who wants to charge and then maybe will overcharge. And that is a big problem, and it's maybe the worst problem. But I I make this point in the book I wrote also, and I would make it to my office, and you made a mention of it there's the opposite problem too. The opposite problem is you have the gun-shy prosecutor who over-investigates even after there's enough to charge. How much do you see that problem? Or do the TV shows have it right? And that the, the major problem is over-aggressiveness as opposed to under-aggressiveness. Because if you're under-aggressive, then that's a person out there who's continuing to commit crimes. Public safety is jeopardized. And a decision not to do something is also a decision, isn't it?
2: Yes. A decision not to do something is is a decision. And I would say Sitting in my chair, sometimes the hardest decision is to know when not to prosecute. I don't think that's the spirit of your question, but I, I think in terms of running an agency, you and I both have made decisions where we declined to prosecute. When yeah. the- we'll, we'll
1: talk about some of those, and I've spent a lot of time being asked those questions too. And it, it's a it's sort of a difficult thing. But but I, I just I just want to know if you agree with me that there's also an issue of not going forward sometimes.
2: Yes. Yeah, so there is, there absolutely is. And when I'm briefed on cases and one one value of having been a practicing lawyer for so many years and trial lawyer is that I like to think that when people are talking to me about their cases and about their decision-making, I can, you know, I have a pretty good antenna as to how this thing might shape up if it was in fact investigated fully. So of course you're going to run into prosecutors who are gun shy. I don't see that too much is what I would say, though. I I don't find that to be a a big problem.
1: I want to ask some more questions sort of general philosophically about how you see prosecution. Maybe that'll set it up for a discussion of particular matters. This is a question I've struggled with a lot, and I don't know how much the public understands this point. So I'm assuming that you have a very high conviction rate in Manhattan DA's office. Do you know offhand what
2: it is? Well, I think that if you're talking about overall conviction rate of cases with pleas, it's going to be, you know, 92 and above percent.
1: Yeah, that seems to be a standard. I think in our office, I don't know the exact number. I didn't pay a lot of attention to that. I know it's very, very high.
2: Yeah, it's it's true that that. But a good number of those those cases are resolved by way of plea, which right. uh, probably most of them. You know, just the way the system works when you're a high volume system like we are.
1: Right. And so I, I ask this question generally, and sometimes of my students, what you would think about a prosecutor's office that had a hundred percent conviction rate? And one of the things you might think about such an office is they only bring easy cases, they're under aggressive, and they only bring cases that are you know aimed at the low-hanging fruit, because what kind of office is so good that it wins every single case that it brings? On the other hand, if you had a DA's office that had a 25% conviction rate, you would ask different questions. You would say, well, they're overcharging, they're ruining people's lives through investigations, they don't understand what the law is. Maybe there's some other explanation, but you would not like an office, I'm guessing, at least this is my view, and I want to speak for you, that had a 100% conviction rate nor would you like an office that has a 25% conviction rate. So then I will ask you the impossible question. If you if if you if you agree with those premises, what's the ideal conviction rate for an office? And do you ever think about that?
2: I pondered not that precise question, but the question of percentages in convictions and acquittals. I think that we have a a, you know, a, a criminal justice system, which for good or bad, and, and I think some would be critical of it, there is so much volume, particularly in the state system, unlike I think the federal system, When I came in, we had 110,000 cases in that year. You simply, you you can't investigate to the T every one of those 110,000 cases. It's impossible. Nor can the judges necessarily process 110,000 trials. So the reality is that the parties on both sides, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and judges who take pleas do accept often lesser resolutions of cases in the service of trying to keep the overall system flowing and operating, uh, functioning with some speed and regularity. So that means to me, you know, 90%, 85%, I think that's a conviction rate that I wouldn't necessarily believe that it was a prosecutor's office that was gun-shy. And I've never heard of a prosecutor's office that has a 100% conviction rate. If I look at our conviction rates, uh, and, and it varies. I would say that for felony trials, uh, the conviction rate in my memory is probably going to be somewhere between after trial, 75 to 85%, somewhere in that range. And for misdemeanor cases, slightly lower. And that's, you know, there's there's lots of reasons for that, reasons why that is lower, but part of it is resources. Uh, part of it is uh, that in the state, Cases there just may not be the ability to work up low level misdemeanor cases and get collect cooperation, uh, for example, with victims of assault or even domestic violence. There's I think there's some challenges we have in the state system that don't translate to the federal system.
1: Well, look, and the federal system in some ways, you know, we're a lot more selective and have the luxury of being more selective, and conduct long term investigations and, you know, maybe are more able not to bring a case if we don't think it's there. Whereas I'm guessing for certain kinds of street crime where there's an actual victim and maybe the evidence is not so strong, there's a a duty to proceed with the case, which leads me to my next question, which is, again, a very difficult one that I've struggled with. We've talked about overall conviction rates, but with respect to any particular case, you know, um, the people versus Joe Smith, how important is the consideration of likelihood of success at the moment you decide to charge? I spent some time in my book talking about this, and I have a view that maybe is at variance with some other folks' views that it's not always the case that even if you're unlikely to get a conviction, that you don't proceed. What do you think of that question? How important is the likelihood of success?
2: I think it is responsible uh, to have the likelihood of a conviction as part of your assessment. The way I would look at it, Preet, is that first of all, assuming you have all the relevant facts, do you believe a crime was committed? If you don't believe a crime was committed, then I think you stop there.
1: So that's that's fundamental, that
2: yeah, there has to be, and, the, and that the person you're looking at did it,
1: right? A subjective belief that they absolutely did it, and then, the, the, then it's a separate question in your mind, and it is in mine also. Can you prove it based on yeah. the rules of evidence and your witnesses and everything else?
2: And I would say that I think our philosophy, my philosophy, is that if we believe a crime is committed and we believe that we can prevail at trial, that. Oftentimes there's risk anytime you go to take a case to 12 jurors and you in our system, you have to have a unanimous jury and proof beyond a reasonable doubt for every element of every crime charged in the indictment. That's, a, that's the highest burden there is uh, in our court system to meet. Maybe there's another burden out there that I just don't know of in the federal system. But that's the second question is, if you believe you have the evidence to convict, then I think that's an you know, indication you should go forward. If you believe there is an inadequate evidence to convict, then even though you think a crime may have been committed, you can't proceed forward. Let me give you an example. Someone may be arrested for possession of a loaded gun in their car. And the issue is not whether or not they actually possessed the loaded gun. The issue is whether or not the circumstances under which they were stopped and questioned and the car searched was lawful constitutionally or not. And if you feel in a case with those facts that you will not be able to sustain your burden before the court in proving that the search was lawful and proper and that there's going to be a Fourth Amendment violation, then you don't go forward with that case. You don't take it necessarily to court just to know that you're going to have a judge dismiss it or if you took it to court and got a conviction that the appellate court would dismiss it. But sometimes it's not a
1: binary choice. You have a quantum of evidence. Uh, and sometimes there are cases that are overwhelming. You know, you have 17 witnesses, you have a tape recording, you have a video, and the likelihood of success, and you never know, but the likelihood of conviction is really, really, really high. And there's no such thing as a slam dunk in our system. It's what makes our system one that has integrity, because the jury decides. But there are cases like that. And then there are cases further on the other side of the spectrum where, you know, you hoped you had a video, but the video didn't come through. And you have a couple of witnesses to the robbery, but they have a lot of issues. And it's unclear how how credible a jury might find them. You've met the first standard that you've described. That is, you do believe the crime was committed and was committed by the person that you're looking at. But, you know, it's uncertain whether or not a jury is going to buy your case. Does that make a difference in how you decide to go forward and should it?
2: I think it is responsible to to consider how a jury may evaluate the case. And I think it should be considered. Let's take an example. They're sometimes bringing a case to trial the consequences of that loss, if, there, if it's a loss, can have bigger implications in other cases prosecuted by that office or even or elsewhere. Domestic violence. We ultimately look to, in, in, most, in most of these cases, as to what is the survivor's, what, what does he or she want us to do? And if we prosecute a case and the survivor understands and thinks that she'll pay a, a greater price if the case is, is, is brought, that's something that we'll take into consideration as well. In areas that uh, where there is a lot of public interest, and we'll talk about some of these cases, the consequence of taking a case to trial and losing it can have negative implications over the broader area of criminal justice that you're trying to but like what? address. Do you mean- Domestic violence, sex crimes.
1: But does it have a negative impact in the sense that the public loses faith in the rule of law or something
2: that? Or else? that survivors survivors are less likely to report instances to the police and prosecutors.
1: Because they will have a sense of fut- futility.
2: Or, or that the you know, the very aggressive and active press coming from 360 degrees of, uh, 60 degrees of opinions uh, may take a loss and blow it up into, you know, you can never believe a case involving XYZ crime.
1: So that's very interesting. So I was going to come to this later, but I think we should talk about some of these things now. But my segue question is, because I get asked this question all the time, or used to get asked this question, and you alluded to it. What is different in your office and in the minds and the hearts of the prosecutors when the person that you're looking at and contemplating charging or end up charging is not an anonymous, ordinary, average citizen of the city of New York or the the borough of Manhattan, but is someone who who has great fame or notoriety or power or wealth, like for example, the notorious DSK, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, that your office charged with sexual misconduct back in 2011. I I want you to answer the question sort of generally first, and then we'll talk about some of these cases. Is there a different standard of justice for people who have power and fame? And or is there something different going on in the minds of the people who are in your office, or should there be, when the target is someone like that? It's, and I'll tell you what what I think about that also, because I think it's a a difficult question to answer sometimes. Yeah,
2: I, I, look, I think a person who is, uh, well, known and is going to attract a lot of attention is both, it cuts both ways. And I think you'd probably say the same thing. I mean, that person may, to some prosecutors, uh, be more important to prosecute and others less likely to prosecute. I will say that oftentimes the ability of the lawyers for individuals who have a lot of resources are able to bring more facts to the decision-making, uh, some of which a prosecutor's office might not on their own have been able to have been able to address. And the, and I think the end, at, the, at the end of the day, looking at Dominique Strauss-Kahn's case, Rita, if I can just refer to that one, we utterly, the reason we brought that well, you case- you want to remind people about the basics of the case work? Yeah. Dominique Strauss-Kahn was the head of uh, the IMF, I believe, uh, at the time, uh, International Monetary Fund. He was a sophisticated, intelligent- Bureaucrat, I don't mean that in a negative word, but but, uh, sort of a public servant uh, economist and analyst who was rumored to be a likely candidate and victor in the next campaign for the presidency of France.
0: For almost four years, Dominique Strauss-Kahn has run the International Monetary Fund, which is grappling with Europe's debt crisis. Now the 62-year-old French politician has a crisis of his own, accused of attempted rape inside an upscale Manhattan hotel. A 32-year-old maid told police she was sexually assaulted Saturday afternoon by Strauss-Kahn inside his $3,000-a-night suite on the 28th floor. She had gone in to clean...
2: I did not know Dominique Strauss-Kahn at the time that my first... Our our office first came into, into contact with his case. He was accused of sexually assaulting a woman from Guinea and as the case started she was she was a housekeeper at the Sofitel hotel she, she, right? actually, yes she was a, she was a housekeeper at the Sofitel hotel in Manhattan and the facts as we knew them in the days after the complaint uh, came in and the and the FBI and the police made the arrest were such that we believed with conviction the accusation by the woman. And we proceeded because of that to charge and ultimately uh, indict Dominique Strauss-Kahn uh, for sexual assault. It was not until some four to six weeks later that we became aware of information, uh, which we would not have been able to be aware of, at, at least in the, in the short time frame at the beginning of the case, that left me with this problem there's no doubt that there was sexual interaction and the physical evidence proved that beyond a reasonable doubt
1: the first principle that you recited earlier about the prosecutor's office needing to feel certain that something bad happened that that was met
2: well it was cl- yeah well i think it was clear in that case that there was uh, there was a sexual encounter the question was ultimately whether it was a crime and as we explained in a in a detailed filing uh, to the superior the supreme court judge in our motion to dismiss was the the ultimate challenge was that we didn't know what happened actually beyond a reasonable doubt in the hotel room as prosecutors responsible for managing that case and if if we did not believe beyond a reasonable doubt that we could both believe what happened and that that we could prove it uh, then how could we ask a jury of 12 people to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that certain conduct happened so ultimately uh, i think it's an indication of you know the office was uh, was aggressive and i think for all the right instincts believed uh, the complainant and when she came in and and as additional facts came out many factors caused us to question that belief and ultimately to leave us in a place where we did not know beyond a reasonable doubt what actually happened. So just to,
1: maybe this is a point that not everyone cares deeply about, but is it the case that the office still believed X and was concerned based on credibility problems with the complainant that a jury might not believe it or the office itself no longer had the same view and was uncertain about what the truth was?
2: It was was the latter. Okay. But to be clear... It's not a situation where the office was not prepared to take on a powerful person or to well, not you did. credit. Because we did. I- exactly, we did. Uh, the
1: inflection point is the charge. Obviously, the trial has to ensue, but it, it is not, I, mean, I assume this is true. It's not a small thing to bring that charge. And then it is not a small thing to abandon that charge.
2: Yes, it was, nothing about the case was small.
1: Nothing about the case was, can, can I ask you a, qu- a personal question? Yeah. What was that like? Uh, I remember, because it was not far from my office and I was in office at the time. You know, this is a term that's used from time to time, but I think it applies here. There was a bit of a circus-like atmosphere around that case, given who it was and given some of the... I know both of the lawyers, one has now passed in that case, representing the complainant and also the defendant, who has been a guest on on the podcast, in fact, Ben Brafman. What is it like? What Does it do anything to how you think about the case or how you feel about the case or how the prosecutors wake up in the morning? when a particular matter out of the thousands and thousands in the office turns into a circus?
2: I think it would be inaccurate to say that I or the lawyers handling the case would be unaware of the extreme interest and, in some cases, the circus-like atmosphere that follows. But that's not atypical for cases in our office. They may not all be a three-ring circus, (laughs) <laughs> but there right. are some. Oh, I'm familiar you know, with some, the feeling. Yes. There's some one or two ring circuses. Uh, and what I, you know, the way I describe it and I'm, to, to folks, as you describe it to your students is you got to be aware of sort of, you are going to be aware of what advocates think, what critics think, what everyone is thinking and saying publicly, but it's a little bit, if I can give analogy, it's like being a Player on the free throw line in a pro basketball game, and everybody behind the basket is waving white handkerchiefs, trying to get you to not focus on the thing you need to focus on, which is getting the ball through the hoop. And so I think for line prosecutors as well as for elected prosecutors, there's going to be noise in a lot of cases. And you have to be willing to listen, uh, to reconsider, and not judge prematurely. But at the end of the day, That noise is a given and you have to be able to work through that noise. And the only way to work through that noise and be feel good about whatever the outcome is, is that you sort of follow the processes that have been used by our offices for generations, thorough investigation, trying to uncover Eddingstone, stone, uh, making a judgment on the facts, the best facts that you can develop. And then you make your decision on the facts you have. And uh, that's what you're ultimately have to stay true to.
1: What was the harder decision? And maybe this is not a fair question. The decision to charge in that case, or the decision to drop the charge in that case.
2: The harder decision was the decision not to drop the case. To to drop the case, excuse me. To to seek to uh, dismiss. And why is that? Is that because
1: it was, it was tougher on the merits, or because you know there's institutional pride, and you've brought a case, and everyone is looking at you to be successful in bringing that case,
2: and now you have well, to do it, it. You know, interestingly, pre, I think many in our office and even alumni of the office looked at our overall resolution of that case as actually being in the, you know, some of the, the best traditions of of lawyering in the criminal practice, which is you, you, know, you are open-minded and you are not foreclosing believing someone simply because they may be poor or not have the advantages that others have, and that you're prepared to go forward on that commitment. And we are, like you all were at the U.S. Attorney's Office, we are in the business of believing victims. That's our default. But we also have another guiding principle, which you had, which is our responsibility to continue to investigate. And when information comes about during that investigation that we may not be happy to receive, we have to take it where it takes us and then make the decision based upon the full measure of information. In that case, it was in fact. I think, a more difficult decision to dismiss the case because I had to be able to, we had to be able to, uh, in detail, explain to the judge and the public how we got to the decision that we ultimately arrived at so that there would be transparency in understanding what we did and why. Would it have been possible
1: in that case, I know some people have said this and I wonder what you say to them, that you could have waited to bring the charge and done the inquiries in the interviews and every other bit of investigation that you ultimately did that brought you to the point where you realized you needed to drop the case? Why not do that first before bringing the charge in the first place? Or was there some other circumstance that didn't allow that?
2: Well, I, th- I think there were two factors. One is that the assistants who were responsible for the case at the time believed we should go forward, that it did not present itself based upon the information they, they had as a case that was going to have fatal flaws. It, it, and the ultimate information that we did receive did not come about into some months or some number of weeks after the initiation of the case. Would we have been able to get that information in the first X number of days? No, it's, it's not likely that that would have happened. Uh, there was also the issue of uh, the intense circus-like atmosphere actually led us to have concerns about uh, the victim's safety and pressure, the concern about pressure uh, that she may become under given reporters showing up in Guinea in West Africa and all the other intense pressure uh, that she was under at the time. And that there was a concern with regard to not being able to have her tell her story as reasonably quickly as possible because delay in having her testify could also, at that time in our view, end up making it more difficult for her to testify. Right.
1: So that's a case that... Got a lot of criticism from various quarters, from both sides during the pendency, and then from another side afterwards. Can I ask you how do you, you know, I had my share of criticism on cases brought and cases not brought. How do you cope with that as a person? Do you just you just shut it out? Do you not do you not read it? Do you ask, um, like I sometimes did, your spouse to read it and uh, summarize <laughs> summarize it for you? When you're in a high-profile job like yours, and when things like this happen, do you, do you have a big meal? Um, Do do you have any coping mechanisms or are you one of those people that will say that it just sort of rolls off your back? No big deal.
2: No, I think it's, I I think criticism is, and harsh criticism is always and should be hard to take, but I don't think, you know, I mean, my goal is to review criticism with an eye toward trying to learn something from it. There is always going to be a lot of criticism in the jobs that you held and I hold. And I do think that uh, you have to accept criticism as just part of the the reality of holding a job like the one you held and the one I hold. Yeah, look,
1: I've said many times, nobody we investigated or prosecuted ever sent me flowers or chocolates. It's not how it works.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, But of course, this is impacted by the extraordinarily dense media coverage in New York, and in some of these cases, global coverage. And there are many times in these cases where you, you know, there's being right the writing during the course of the case, criticism during the course of the case. Um, I think you just have to keep your eye on the basketball hoop, and you have to you, know, you have to move through the processes of investigation or the processes of getting ready for trial. And what people say about the case is uh, you really can't control. All you can control is what you do and what your assistants do in your office.
1: Right. So, so I distinguish between two kinds of cases where there may be criticism and how, as a prosecutor, you can effectively and appropriately explain to the world why you made the decision you make. And in the one case, or the one category, it's if you make a decision to charge and you go to trial or you dismiss the case, people are in a better position to talk about your decision like they were in the DSK case, right? You made the decision to go forward. People can take their, their point of view based on reviewing the evidence in your filings, Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Were mistakes made? Were they not made? And you can have an argument about it. But there's another category, which is, and we've referred to it already once, of cases that you don't bring, that people are expecting you to bring or want you to bring, whether it's against a prominent person or not. And then you make the decision as an office, and I did this many times, right? Not to bring the case. And to me, that's a much harder thing to explain to the public why you didn't do something. It's harder just generally, you know, in life to assess a decision not to do something, a decision not to take a job or decision not to marry someone because you don't know what history would have brought you. And so that's the kind of thing that you had to face as well. Most notably in 2015, when your office decided not to prosecute Harvey Weinstein based on a particular complaint that involved an improper touching as alleged by the complainant, who then worked with police officers to get you know, what I think some people view as a somewhat incriminating audio recording later that could have been used as evidence. Everything. I'm a famous I'm, guy. I'm feeling very
0: uncomfortable right please now. Please come in now and one minute. And if you want to leave, when the guy comes with my jacket... Why yesterday you, know, you touched my breast? Oh, please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. Come on. Are you used please. to that? Yes, come in. No, but I'm not used to that. I won't do it again. Come
2: on.
1: And your office didn't bring the case. Before I get to that and have you say what you want to say about it, what do you think is the role of a prosecutor in making a public explanation about cases not brought? On the one hand, you could decide, look, our cases speak for themselves. If we don't bring a case against the mayor or the governor or a legislator or a a Hollywood producer, we're not going to get into it. That's what got Jim Comey in trouble with respect to Hillary Clinton. Or do you think that some amount of explanation is possible and appropriate and necessary?
2: I think it depends on the case. I think there are some former prosecutors who believe, as you say, that you only speak through your indictments and not through your decisions not to indict and that, that there is no comment. But I think that today some different general rules apply. One of the problems about talking about a case that you don't bring is that much of the information is the information is obtained through a grand jury process and may be still covered by grand jury secrecy uh, that you don't want to expose a victim or others to expose personal facts that may be harmful to them if they are exposed. And so there are a number of reasons why you are reluctant to go deep into reasons not to prosecute a case. And in 2015, to turn to your uh, the case you alluded to, as I said, some of the hardest decisions are the ones to not bring cases. To walk away. Um, they are indeed the hardest. Yeah. But in that case, I, I think the process that we followed is exactly the kind of process that I think you need to apply in cases. And then you know, you make your decision and, and folks will criticize you or not. But you, if you feel you made the right decision, that's all you can control. I had the head of our sex crimes bureau, who at the time had, I think, 39 years of prosecution experience as a professional prosecutor. The chairwoman of the Defense Department's Commission on Sexual Assault in the Military tried innumerable cases, and and ultimately, her conclusion to me uh, was that this is not a case that we should bring, and there were discretionary issues around that, and there were credibility issues around that, and we made a decision which at the time, frankly, didn't seem too interesting to people at all.
1: Is this an example of what you were referring to earlier, And, and if so, can you talk about it? Because the reporting is that the police department disagreed with the decision not to prosecute. And as we discussed, the decision is made by prosecutors, not by the police. But was was there a significant amount of tension with respect to that decision that you were aware of?
2: I think there was a significant amount of tension, but I think it came to light at a later point in 2017 after the reportings were made on Mr. Weinstein's allegations about uh, his misconduct in the past but that's an that is an example of a case where our office, I respect all our law enforcement partners. I really respect the NYPD, and in the overwhelming number of cases that we work with them on, we come to the same conclusion. But my job is different than a the detective's. Their job takes them so far in the process, and our job is to take a case to trial. And ultimately, uh, have the proof when all the facts will be laid out, as they would be laid out in that case at a trial, and make a decision based on all those facts. And that sometimes causes tension with the NYPD. But take another example. We made a decision in our office to stop prosecuting marijuana cases in 2018. We made a decision to effectively stop prosecuting theft of services cases, which was controversial because I couldn't imagine that a $2.50 theft that the the consequences of being arrested and going through the criminal process were disproportionate to the offense at inception.
1: You're talking about things like 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 fare evasion on the subway.
2: Yeah, and all those things cause conflict with the NYPD. That said, in the long run, I've had a good relationship with uh, with uh, Commissioner Bratton, Jimmy O'Neill after him, and with Dermot Shea today. A couple more questions on the
1: on the Weinstein case. Your office ended up bringing a different case involving different victims later. And just some months ago, convicted Harvey Weinstein, who got a significant sentence on a number of those counts. And when you've been asked about 2015 versus 2019, you said something that was very interesting. I think you said something like, we were looking at that case with 2015 eyes, not 2019 eyes. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I, th- I think I meant two things. One, that is, I believe uh, that over time, we evolve in our jobs, based upon events and facts that you know, we lived through during the time in office. And the publication of Mr. Weinstein's story and the stories of, of many others, many of whom have never been charged in court, and my conversations with uh, with survivors groups and in advocates has led me to understand that workplace sexual assault was much more predominant than I knew, in fact, uh, in 2015. I don't think I'm alone in that. I'm sure that there are folks who would say, well, you were blind to it. And the answer is, I think many were. I don't mean we didn't. We obviously prosecuted cases involving workplace sexual assault. That's That's not my point. But the point is that in 2017, we had a whole lot more information about who Hardy Weinstein was. Seems like
1: a few things have changed, right? There was different evidence because it's a different kind of case. I think you've also made the point, which I think is well taken, that there's a shift in public consciousness and public education such that you could maybe trust juries to understand non-intuitive facts like victims continue to have some contact or relationship with the person who victimized them. And that would make for a more prosecutable case in 2019 versus 2015. But I I wanna press a little bit more on this other thing. In my assessment, going back to an earlier question we were discussing of how important is the likelihood of success in going forward? In part to me, and I don't know if you agree with this, something that factors into it is the seriousness of the harm that's involved in the crime. So if it's something petty and it's not a societal, you know, deep societal issue, then maybe if you have less likelihood of success, you don't push it. But in my mind, I wonder if this is if it's true that given the Me Too movement and all sorts of attention coming, not just to Harvey Weinstein, but the problem generally of sexual misconduct, particularly on the part of the powerful towards the less powerful, that the risk assessment for prosecutors has changed over time such that now, given how serious the underlying problem is and how seriously the public takes it uh, and how seriously you need to do something to deter it, that prosecutors, such as those in your office, are more open to taking an aggressive line in those cases—is that fair or not?
2: I think it. I think it is fair. Um, I look. I like to think, and I believe that for as long as I've been involved in the office, you know, we're making the decisions on the facts and the law. But we definitely evolve in our understanding of the behavior of survivors of crime in ways and in in crime areas that we didn't. And we see this happen uh, several cases historically. Domestic violence in the 1980s was the awareness of the psychology behind a survivor staying, returning to the abuser or coming in and making a complaint and then testifying oppositely or not wanting to go forward once the case had been brought. We understood over time why that happened, and once we were able to develop expert testimony, the office and I'm sure other offices around the country, of course, were able to both be more sensitized to the behavior of the survivor that we may not have understood previously, also have the legal foundation through expert testimony in prior court and in prior cases that you know that, that looked at these evidentiary rules to bring in expert testimony. Sex trafficking, some of the most difficult cases that we handle in terms of the issues you're talking about. We functionally no longer prosecute prostitution in Manhattan. All prostitution cases where arrests are made go to a special court in Midtown Manhattan, and the assistance we assign to that part are all responding from our uh, sex trafficking unit. and they're trying to identify not who committed prostitution, but what prostituted woman was actually, or man was actually, in this situation, because of force, fraud, or coercion, or uh, at whatever age, <laughs> whatever age the the survivor is. And so our understanding in sex trafficking changed radically uh, between nineteen eighty and two thousand ten. We opened up our sex trafficking unit two thousand twelve. They try some of the most difficult cases where the abused partner will take the stand and swear that nothing happened, notwithstanding the fact that on wiretaps, lots has happened, that there are photographs of abuse and bruises and tattoos. Those are two areas where, I'm sorry for the long answer, but those are two areas where our understanding evolved over time. And when you look at those two areas, it kind of makes sense. The area of sexual assault by the powerful or non-powerful is an area where over time I think our understanding has evolved as well. And in the Harvey Weinstein case, I understood that the case was going to be extremely challenging from a trial perspective. But I believed the survivors, uh, I, I had excellent lawyer investigating and trying the case, I, uh, the survivors we did that was not the issue. The issue was will a jury convict. And in my view, I felt that the Population of Manhattan in particular, but the country as a whole, they were understanding more about what was happening in this, you know, in the victimology of uh, uh, of survivors of of sexual assault. So, do you credit the Me Too movement in part
1: or in large part with creating an atmosphere and public understanding sufficient to allow your office to be comfortable bringing that Harvey Weinstein case that you ultimately brought?
2: Yes, I, I I do credit it, and I and I think. I've read the books of and and the, the writings around those folks who covered it. I think I don't agree with all of their assessments, but their writings definitely had an impact of, I think, educating the public about the issue generally. And I believed that in 2020, that a jury would be able to understand testimony, which even five years ago would have not been as easily understand by a group of Manhattan jurors to reach a verdict unanimously based upon belief beyond a reasonable doubt that the case had been proven for each and every element of the crime.
1: We talked earlier about what happens if a case doesn't proceed well. And in certain circumstances, that could lead to a bad consequence for the officer and public faith. So I, I feel like I need to ask you this question. The fact that the DSK, the Dominic Strauss-Kahn case, ended with you dismissing the charges in 2011. Did that have any direct or indirect effect, you think, now in hindsight, on how aggressive your office was prepared to be in not bringing the case against Harvey Weinstein in 2015, or is there no relationship at all?
2: They, I'm, I'm, I'm always in my mind, obviously I'm aware of the DSK, but, you know, pre, we've handled, I think, 6,000 sex crimes cases, plus in my time in office.
1: Right, but but uh, I mean, some people would say, you know, you had this this circus situation with DSK, high profile, sex crime allegation. Oh, now we have another high profile person. Twenty fifteen. You know what? What lessons were in the minds of people? I think it's you know not appropriate to people, ask.
2: It may it may not be. I was going to say it. it people not, may not perceive it, but our analysis in twenty fifteen. Uh, as far as I was concerned, had nothing to do with 2012 and Dominique Strauss-Kahn. It was, it was a thorough investigation based by an ultimate professional who had no interest in politics or, or donations and and. Uh, I, I thought it was an important question
1: to ask and for you to address. Well, people would do this with me. A lot of folks, and maybe sometimes it's true in certain contexts that a particular result in a particular case has some chilling effect later on bringing cases. I would always tell people when when folks said that about some of my cases, whether it's the financial crisis or something else, you know, I think lay people often want to draw a line between something that happened in an office on date X and why they may not have done something later, maybe not fully appreciating that these are independent things, or maybe sometimes in certain circumstances those critics are correct. And, you know, prosecutors are human beings too. And sometimes decisions are made, maybe not so consciously based on other things, but maybe they are influenced. But I, you know, I think it's a thing that people have wondered about and asked about. So I'm glad
2: you addressed it. The way I describe it is sometimes the right answer is the simplest answer, which is the facts under review in 2015 were reviewed based on all the information we had then. And not uh, holding over any concerns about Dominique Strauss Kahn. I mean, we've, we we had prosec- Our office has prosecuted, as I say, many, many, many sex crimes cases. Uh, men and and in some cases not prosecuted. And in some of those cases, there are you know, other powerful men. Uh, so I I think it's it's as as you said. I think it's you're trying to create a connection because it seems like it's right there and therefore must be true. But it is, in fact, true. I'm
1: going to ask you one one more of these cases, and then we'll, we'll go on to something else, because it's been in the news also. The Columbia doctor, Robert Haddon. My conversation with the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, continues next week. We'll discuss his views on the relationship between the coronavirus pandemic and law enforcement, and review more of the cases that have come to define his tenure, at least in the press. For more of my conversation with Cyrus Vance this week, Become a member of the Cafe Insider community and hear the Stay Tuned bonus material, plus get the exclusive weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram and other content. To get a free two-week trial, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. So folks, each week we receive meaningful, challenging, and educational letters from the Stay Tuned and Cafe Insider communities, and I appreciate it. All the letters. I really do. This week we received a message from Ethan in Santa Barbara, and I want to tell you about it. In 2016, Ethan started a mail art and letter writing group called Pen Connection, which was designed to give concerned people an outlet to write to those who are confined by ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And so for the last year, Pen Connection has been teaming up with another group called Allies to End Detention to send things like handmade cards to asylum seekers who are being held at the for-profit Ote Mesa Detention Center in San Diego. That detention center is currently experiencing the worst COVID 19 outbreak at any ICE facility, reportedly. According to ICE tallies, their own tallies, 155 detainees and 11 personnel have the coronavirus. And as these groups continue to send letters and receive responses from inside Ote Mesa, the facility, a somewhat disturbing picture has emerged. Letters from detainees describe in wrenching detail the lack of PPE supplies from hand soap to disinfectant to masks and gloves, in the facility. The letters also tell stories of limited testing, only available for those who are already showing very severe symptoms, including, according to detainees, a temperature above 104 degrees. And the missive suggests that many detainees are unable to sign their requisite forms to receive new masks and to offer release of ICE liability. Ethan expressed concern in a letter to us about a new limitation. As he relates, over the last few weeks the facility has taken steps to curtail the flow of mail in and out. They have returned dozens of cards with prohibited item notices, claiming the arts and crafts materials are now contraband. So Penn Connection is now pivoting to respond with printed letters, poems, and other means of support. Ethan kindly shared with us some of the letters he and his fellow volunteers have received from within inside the Ote Mesa facility. One detainee, Julio, has written repeatedly since the COVID-19 outbreak began, describing in detail... In letters, his time as a police officer in Michoacan and his kidnapping at the hands of drug cartels. He says he sought asylum due to his continued fear of the cartels. In one letter, Julio, who, by the way, has been battling pneumonia during the pandemic, details his futile attempts to get a mask once the outbreak began. In another letter, Julio discusses his fears about the quarantining of those in his dormitory who are infected with COVID-19. According to reports, at least one detainee at Ote Mesa from El Salvador, has died of COVID-19. For its part, ICE has issued a statement pushing back on some of the claims made by Ote Mesa detainees and activists. They claim they've taken important steps to safeguard all detainees, staff, and contractors, including reducing the number of detainees in custody and taking other measures as well. The point here is that as the whole nation struggles to deal with the coronavirus, there are places, including detention facilities like these, where the problem is particularly acute, and we should not forget about those people either. Based on the latest ICE tally, there are 1,201 confirmed cases among ICE detainees. That may not sound like a lot, but it's a 50% positive rate, as only 2,394 detainees have been tested. But as with all other areas where outbreaks of coronavirus are occurring, lost within these statistics are the human stories and fears of those who remain in ICE custody. The letter-writing work that Ethan and so many other volunteers are engaging in is helping to personalize the pain of those people in custody who may be easily forgotten. So thank you, Ethan, for your note to us, for doing this work, and for illustrating the importance of keeping personal stories front and center in all of our communities, wherever you are. And in particular, in dealing with the sometimes complex moral issues relating to compassionate release and detainee justice during this pandemic. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Cyrus Vance. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam ozer Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.